let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Yesterday, I talked about the first of the three general characteristics. As you know, all conditioned phenomena are subject to three common or general characteristics. Things are impermanent, subject to change, they are instable. This is anicca the first of these three general characteristics. Then the second is unsatisfactoriness or suffering. That's dukkha in Pali. And the third is the impersonal nature of phenomena or the non-self nature of phenomena. This is called Anatta in Pali. So yesterday we have seen that all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. They arise and disappear. We can notice that in nature as well as in our body. And not only in nature and in our body, but also we notice it in our mind. Even if we look very carefully, very deeply, we cannot find a permanent or unchanging entity within the mind. So, neither in the body nor in the mind exists there an independent or inherently existing entity. Our body and our mind arise dependent on certain causes and conditions. And with the cessation of these causes and conditions, then this mental and physical phenomena also to exist, then they dissolve, they disappear. So there is no conditioned phenomena which is eternal, permanent or unchanging and therefore it cannot be the basis for eternal or permanent happiness. Experiences of happiness and joy are very fleeting and often too short. 
we notice from our own um, experience. Things or persons or situations and circumstances can never make us completely happy and satisfied. Things, persons, circumstances, they are inherently unsatisfactory and not reliable. So this unsatisfactoriness or suffering is the second of the general characteristics. In Pali, this is called Dukkha. Dukkha plays a central role in the teaching of the Buddha. The heartwood of the Buddha's teaching are the four noble truths which the Buddha mentioned in his first discourse after he had become fully enlightened. The Buddha gave that famous talk in the deer park of Isipatthana near Saranath, which is close to Varanasi in present-day India. And he gave this talk to the five ascetics with whom he had practiced uh, for many years. But finally the Buddha saw the uselessness of this um, ascetic practices of mortification and so he gave up his practices. For the five ascetics, this was a sign of weakness and they thought that the Buddha was going back to a life of indulgence and luxury. But for the Buddha, it was only abandoning an extreme practice and going back to the middle. So anyway, in this famous first discourse, the Buddha simply stated that there is suffering, there is dukkha in this world. And this constitutes the first noble truth. This truth says that all conditioned phenomena, all conditioned things, are inherently unsatisfactory, the source of suffering. So when we hear that, and if it is said that it is very, it is a very profound and deep truth, we may think that actually it's not so difficult to understand. We can say, oh yes, of course, there is suffering around. I know I have experienced it for myself to a certain degree. And we also see there is dissatisfaction and suffering around in the world. So we think we know it. Because suffering is unpleasant, we don't want to further look at it. We just 
want to avoid it, to run away. We rather want to have or experience what is pleasant or um, of an agreeable nature. So there, we, avo- we want to avoid the, the fact that there is suffering. We don't want to look closer at it. And this is exactly the point that the Buddha wants us to deeply understand. Because we do not really and deeply understand this truth, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, because of that we are turning in the cycle of birth and death, samsara. And as long as we are imprisoned in this never-ending circle, as long will we be subject to suffering. This general characteristic is manifested wherever we encounter living beings. And so, through this characteristic, there is a connection to other living beings. In one way or another, we are united in the fact that there is unpleasantness, unsatisfactoriness, or suffering in our lives. So, even if the person next to you is a person you don't know, but you are connected to that person on the fact that he or she is also subject to different forms of unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And even the most well-known person in Malaysia is also subject to unsatisfactoriness. And even the richest person in the world. So when we speak of unsatisfactoriness, of suffering or misery, What do we actually mean with that? So if we want to understand that better, then we need to look at the Pali word Dukkha. Mostly it's translated as suffering, unsatisfactoriness or misery in English. But that only covers part of what Dukkha actually means because there is no equivalent in English to cover the whole range that the Pali word Dukkha covers. (coughs) So Dukkha does not only cover the obvious forms of suffering (coughs) which which we mostly connect with physical suffering, physical pain, or strong forms of mental suffering, anguish, or anger, grief, and so forth. But Dukkha also includes states like dissatisfaction, ill will, disharmony, frustration, irritation, worry, grief, imperfection, 
not feeling well, disappointment or fear, rage, lamentation, etc. So, Dukkha includes both mental and physical suffering. The Buddha, in that first discourse, describes suffering as follows. He said, birth is suffering, old age is suffering, disease is suffering, death is suffering, to be united with the unpleasant is suffering, to be separated from what is pleasant is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering. So, in short, Dukkha, or the truth of unsatisfactoriness, encompasses the whole of our existence, or expressed differently, existence is suffering. This sounds quite heavy. This is something we don't want to hear or to be confronted with straight into the face. And so that's why, especially in Western materialistic societies, people have become so creative and inventive to invent ever new things to hide us this truth. Just to name a few of these things. There is, for example, the whole entertainment industry, or also the whole cosmetic industry. And then there is the whole range of food and drinks that are available. Then there are the homes for the destitute, for the handicapped, or the homes for old folks. Life is unsatisfactory. Life is suffering. This is reality. And so, as a result, some people conclude that the Buddha's teaching is pessimistic. If the first truth was everything that the Buddha was teaching, then there wouldn't be much hope, indeed. But the first truth is not all that the Buddha taught. He taught three more truths, stating that there is a cause for this suffering, there is the actual end or cessation of suffering, and there is a path leading to the cessation of suffering. So therefore, his teaching is in no way pessimistic. Rather, it is a realistic teaching, starting with the truth that is quite obvious and that we can relate to in one way or another. And then the Buddha said further that this truth of suffering has to be 
thoroughly understood and realized. The Buddha did not say that we should avoid this truth or that we should run away from it, but he stressed the fact that this truth must be deeply understood and fully realized. Before I became a nun, I, at one time, I was doing a retreat in Dharamsala, that's in the foothills of the Himalaya in India, and it's the place where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives and many Tibetan refugees. So there we have also a meditation center where they offer retreats for Westerners, foreigners. At that time, a Western Tibetan nun was guiding that retreat. And retreats in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition are a bit different. There are more teachings, there are more uh, discussion groups, there are guided meditations, so-called analytical meditations, and it's not all in complete silence. So, on the third day, as we were queuing up for lunch, a man from Switzerland, I didn't know him before, I just met him there in that retreat, and for him it was the very first Buddhist meditation retreat. Um, and in that retreat, that Western Tibetan nun, for the first three days, she extensively talked about suffering, about the different kinds of suffering as a human being, and she also talked extensively about the suffering in the lower realms, giving elaborate descriptions of how beings suffer there. So then, queuing up for lunch, this Swiss man, he leaned over to me and asked, is this Buddhism? Is it just all about suffering? And so then I told him that suffering is one aspect of Buddhism, but that there are actually other aspects to Buddhism too but that these nuns, for her own reasons, um, was talking just about suffering all the time. So, when we talk about suffering, physical suffering, physical pain, we ready, readily um, realize or recognize as suffering if we fall ill, or if we break a leg, then we want to get cured as quickly as possible. Then we either take some tablets, some medicine, or we go and see a doctor. So, as I said, normally our attitude to pain is one of avoiding wanting to get rid of it as quickly as possible, 
to run away from it. And when we practice meditation, most of the time we are also confronted with some pain or other. And again, our usual reaction is one of dislike, of not wanting to face it. And because this is our usual habitual reaction, we do not really know what pain actually is. Because we have never made an effort to stay with some unpleasant or painful sensation and face directly, to look at it closely. Now that you are already here two days, some of you have already made some experiences by observing pain. Uh, you have discovered something that you have never seen before. And besides of this obvious suffering of the body, of pain, then there are the countless thoughts, emotions, images, fantasies that go through our mind. Some of you are also attacked by innumerable thoughts. And so with that, you come to realize they are also unsatisfactory. Even though you don't want these thousands of thoughts to come to you all the time during your meditation, they still come. So you realize they are not something that makes you really happy. The aim of Vipassana meditation is to understand and realize all mental and physical phenomena in their true nature. And so when we get a painful sensation in the meditation, then we should take that pain as an equally valid object and uh, stay with it as mindfully, as good as we can. We should have an attitude of curiosity and interest so that we really want to go into that pain and see what it is all about. That we get away from our conceptual understanding of pain and so come to a more realistic understanding of what pain actually is. So if you have the patience and the courage to stay with something that is painful or unpleasant, then you come to see that this solid block of pain is not like that. Maybe it's moments of pulling or aching or sharp stepping pain or heat or pricking sensations, whatever. And you also can see that this pain or these different sensations change. They grow stronger, they become weaker, they move about around in the body 
further up the legs, going down to the ankle, to the toes. So pain is not an object to be feared or to avoid, to run away, but it's something that we make, uh, that we should make friends with. My teacher, Jamie Sayadaw, very often uh, says to the meditators, pain is the key to the door of Nibbana. When you have pain, you are actually lucky because with that you already got the key with which you can open the door to Nibbana. So do not run away from pain, but make it your friend and observe it. Actually, you are very lucky when you get a painful sensation. Of course, beginners are not very happy when friend pain comes in. But with uh, repeated practice, um, actually all meditators come to see the value and benefits of observing painful sensations. Later, when pain has become a very good friend, then you can understand that the pain is yeah, like a good friend inviting you, saying, hey, come, here I am, look at me. If you really come and stay with me and look at me very closely, you can discover so much. You can gain very deep and transforming insights. So, be happy that I'm here. So when a meditator finally can accept pain and stay with it on friendly terms, only then does one come to really uh, get the true taste of the Dhamma, as the Burmese say. The Buddha said, birth, old age, disease, and death are suffering. So birth is suffering both for the mother and the baby. And on top of that, with birth, there follow the other kinds of suffering of old age, disease, and death. And that's why the great Thai meditation master, Achan Cha, said that one should rather cry at the moment of birth and not at the time of death. Because with birth, a being enters a life full of suffering. And in this context, it is interesting to know that the Buddha mentioned five kinds of suffering that are particular to women. These five kinds only women experience, not the men. And these five kinds of suffering are menstruation, pregnancy, 
childbirth, then to live with one's husband's family, and to serve one's husband faithfully. The first three kinds of suffering, menstruation, pregnancy, and childbirth, they arise because of the condition of our female body. The last two kinds of suffering, they there so because of the social uh, norms that were prevailing at the time of the Buddha in the ancient India. At that time, when a woman was getting married, she had to live with her husband and her husband was living with his parents. So she had to live with her in-laws, which was not always very easy. And also the fact that she had to serve her husband faithfully was due to those social norms at that time. Old age is suffering, the Buddha said, which not only means old age in the common sense that maybe after we get 50 or 60, that we consider ourselves getting old, but already after birth, we are getting older. We are going towards death, as I mentioned last night. But of course, it's maybe after 40 or 50 or 60, that the visible signs of old age uh, become stronger and more distinct, like the hairs are getting gray and white, our skin starts to get wrinkles, our muscles get um, weaker, uh, our back may be bent, and so forth. Many other signs of increasing old age. And of course, these signs, these visible signs of old age are not always welcomed by many people. And so gray or white hair are dyed to have black hair like a young 20-year-old youth. And the wrinkles in the face, they are fought with a whole army of cosmetics with lotions and moisturizers and creams and steam on the face or put cucumbers on your face. You know better than I. <laughs> or those who can afford it, they resort to a facelift, plastic surgery. But the aging process is also noticeable in our mind we tend to become more forgetful. We forget what we just said half a minute ago. And other signs are dementia or Alzheimer's disease. The Harigatas are verses from the nuns that became enlightened at the time of the Buddha, 
and among them are the verses of a nun called Ambapari. Before she became a nun, she was a courtesan. In um, she was very beautiful, and her clientele, so to speak, were the Lichavi princes. In other words, she was a high-class prostitute. So her main concern was to maintain her beauty, to look ever beautiful, attractive, and young. <clears throat> After meeting the Buddha, she could face the fact that also her body was subject to old age, and that her beauty was not everlasting. So then she ordained as a nun, practiced meditation, and eventually became enlightened. When she was already quite old, once she addressed her nun's disciples, saying, O oh, my beloved daughters, when I was young, my hair was jet black as the color of the bumblebees. Now it is white and withered like fiber of hemp. When I was young, my teeth were white as jasmine flower buds. Now they are yellow and broken, the cheeks falling in, an ugly appearance. So Venerable Ambapali had realized how all bodily charms give way to ugliness and pain. All physical beauty, no matter how perfect it is at one moment, is utterly impermanent and not a reliable source of happiness. In his book, The Power of Now, written by Eckhart Tolle, he says that the awareness of one's body has many benefits. One of these benefits, he says, is the fact that it slows down the aging process. Being aware is free of charge, and you don't need to spend extra money and extra time. And contrary to a plastic surgery, it's not painful. And he also says that by being more aware of your body, your immune system grows stronger. And being aware of your body is also a very potent form of self-healing. It's like the owner of a house is not there, then all different kind of persons can sneak into the house. Whereas if the owner is in the house, if we really inhabit our body with awareness, then it's difficult for unwanted visitor to creep in. And that awareness brought to the body, to the mind, is 
also a very powerful form of self-healing. This is also mentioned in the latest book that Sayadaw Oindaka has written. It's about the factors of enlightenment, the Bojangas, as medicine. Just recently this book came out in Burmese and I'm presently translating it into English and German. Maybe after a while, then you will be able to read it in English. The Buddha further said, death is suffering. This is another fact of life that very often people want to rather push away than facing it and dealing with it. Yesterday, when I was talking about impermanence, I was already talking about the fact that we all are mortal. Sooner or later, we are going to die. As I said, most of the time, our approaching death or the death of a dear one leads to suffering, to grief, to lamentation. But actually, if we deeply understand that we are mortal, that we have to go one day, it would not lead to this kind of mental suffering. And we could approach death in a different way. In the book, why Buddhism, written by Vicky Mackenzie, she relates the story of an Australian woman who had terminal cancer, who approached death in a completely different way. Her approaching death, she made it a celebration, a festive activity. So, this woman, an Australian woman, her name was Inta, and she uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, but she had been a Buddhist practitioner for more than 25 years, practicing in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and her home had become a small Buddhist center. So, when the author of that book, Vicky Mackenzie, went to visit Inta, she found the atmosphere in the house serene and joyful. Inta was lying in her bed, but being quite happy and serene. Her eyes were even sparkling. The daughter of Inta was orchestrating um, many things that needed to be done for Inta. So there were always a number of students around who were administering the medicine to Inta. Some of them were cooking the meals, others were chanting in the next room, others were just silently practicing meditation. 
Sinta described her situation in the following way. She says, I am as well now as I ever have been. Life is happy, ecstatically happy. I never imagined it would be like this at the end. It's an incredible surprise. I thought death would be a drab experience, a bleaching out. But it is not at all. This happiness started when I let go of the illusion that I could extend my life. The moment I recognized that, yes, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die very soon. I am mortal, and nothing can change that. That's the universal law. That was the big breakthrough. There was no, nothing for it. There was nothing but to pull out all attachments to this life. And that is basic Buddhism. Lama Sopa, my teacher, has said over and over again that to be happy, we have to break the attachment to this life. Before, however, it has all been intellectual and academic. When her teacher, Lama Sopa, heard of her illness, of her terminal illness, he wrote a letter to her. And his letter was somehow different from a letter you would expect uh, to a dying person. He wrote, My very dear Inta, I don't know how to say how sorry I am and how fantastic it is that you have found this disease. As a Dharma practitioner, it may be good to study the thought transformation of how to utilize sickness as a means for causing happiness to all sentient beings, including bringing them to enlightenment. So, like this, go ahead, enjoy your death, make the best use of it, take the greatest profit from it. Of course, Inta, when she read this letter, she was a bit shocked at the first moment. But then, she realized the truth of it. And because of his teacher's shock tactic, she wakes up. She woke up to reality and so could finally fully accept it. So, to enjoy death and make a festive occasion out of it, how does this resonate in our minds, which are mostly uh, conditioned to see approaching death as a frightening, sad, and depressing event? Is it possible to turn around our minds and look at this fact from a different angle. Can we at least allow the thought that the dying process might be a source of happiness and joy? 
Again, Inta said, I'm going into the unknown, certainly, but don't we always? There is no need to be afraid. Every day it feels as if the little doors of my life are opening, like in the Christmas cards. When they are all open, this life will be complete and the mandala of my life will be revealed. For her daughter, her name was Miffy, the approaching death of her mother was also quite a different experience because Miffy had been brought up, as she said, of the Lama, of the Tibetan monk. So she was a first generation Buddhist. And when she heard about her mother um, doing death, she rushed down to where mother was living and staying with her. And Miffy, her daughter, said when she arrived at her mother's home, I found myself very inappropriately excited. This was the big gig. We had had all the rehearsals with the death meditation for years and years, and now the show was on. Furthermore, it was Intas, my mother's show. My job in all of that is being the stagehand. This is both a privilege and a joyful experience. The idea of her not being here anymore doesn't upset me at all. I'm a bit astonished how unsaid I am. Inka is old and she is going to die. I am her attendant in this. Inta brought me into this life and I am helping her out of it. It's really very easy for me. Inta remained fearless until the end, taking a strong last breath. She peacefully passed away. So all these different kinds of suffering birth, old age, disease, and death, they are not fully understand by us. And they are also very obvious forms of suffering. Also not to get what we want, to be separated from the loved ones, to be united with those we don't love. These are the mental suffering. So all these obvious kinds of suffering, they are called dukkha, dukkata. So these are is the suffering of suffering that we know very well. Now you may say that there are moments of happiness, of joy of elation. The Buddha did not deny this fact, but 
he only pointed out that these moments of happiness and joy are not everlasting, not permanent. And because they do change, they cannot be considered true lasting happiness. We also know this, the happiness from last week is gone by now, or the anger from last week is gone also. And because especially the joyful, happy experiences, because they do change after some time, then we want to make them happen again. So then we try to create again the necessary conditions so that um, happiness will arise again. But this is actually quite futile. If you had managed to hold on to a feeling of happiness, then why are you here meditating? Why are not you not just enjoying that happiness for the rest of your life? So, even though there are moments of happiness and joy, they do not last, they change. And so, when the happiness is gone, when the joy is gone, then we are frustrated, we are sad, we get upset. And so this is the kind of suffering that the Buddha calls the suffering of change. In Pali, this is called Viparinama Dukkha. Because conditioned phenomena are subject to change, so they are of an unsatisfactory nature. They never can give us the so much wanted lasting happiness, unchanging joy. And to really face that fact, again, as the Buddha said, we need to face unsatisfactoriness. We need to face suffering. And because it's so unpleasant, it's really difficult, not easy, to open up our hearts to deeper and deeper levels of suffering, of pain, of anguish, and so forth. So it needs quite a big portion of patience, of perseverance, and also lots of courage to open up to what we think is unbearable suffering and anguish. To the question why enlightenment happens in stages, Sayadaw Upandita, a famous Burmese meditation master, said that this was so because one could not face so much suffering at once. This suffering of change, I just want to illustrate it with a little example. 
something that initially makes you very happy and uh, satisfied is not inherently a source of happiness. Like for example, um, in Switzerland, for many people, a piece of chocolate cake is a source of great happiness and delight. Of course, it's made with Swiss chocolate. I don't know what for Malaysian people would be the thing that many people really like and make them happy. But I hope you can relate to this um, little analogy with a chocolate cake. So, and especially if it's a homemade chocolate cake by your mother. So, if you go visit your mother and she offers you a piece of this excellent chocolate cake, already smelling it, um, your mind, your heart goes very happy and you are very delighted. And when you taste the first bite of this chocolate cake, your taste buds go all crazy and you think you are in Tushita heaven. And so you continue uh, to eat this piece of chocolate cake all happy and delighted and then your mother is offering you a second piece of chocolate cake and you're very happy oh yes yes of course and so you're going to eat the second piece by the end of the second piece you feel quite full and actually you have enough and when your mother asks you, you want to take another piece of cake? Actually, your mind, the craving, the greed, wants to take another piece. But your full and heavy stomach says, mm, maybe not. And then your mother is forcing you to eat the third piece of chocolate cake. Ah, as you have to eat it. Where is this happiness from just before when you saw or smelled it, when you had the first piece? You rather reluctantly eat it and you are not happy anymore. And after that, your mother comes and says, and now you're going to eat the fourth piece of chocolate cake. And all you do is just, oh no, and oh, you can't even look at this piece of chocolate cake anymore. And so you are not happy anymore. It's the same chocolate cake. Chocolate cake hasn't changed. It still is delicious and uh, exquisite as before. But, yeah. getting it, getting too much of it, getting it over a long period of time, the experience changes and it's not a source of happiness anymore. So you see, the happiness is not 
in the chocolate cake. The happiness is not going for a nice ride in the woods. The happiness is not seeing a movie. The happiness is not uh, listening to your favorite music. It's just what you make out of it. Some years ago, I was reading in the newspaper that an Australian couple set up the record for the longest kiss. It said that they were kissing each other for 135 hours. That's a bit more than five days. When I read that, I thought, hmm, I wonder if they still want to kiss each other. <laughs> and so, this leads to the third aspect of suffering. And in Pali, it is called Sankara Dukkata. The term Sankara means all conditioned things. Everything that arises dependent on certain causes and conditions is called Sankara. And as we have seen yesterday, what is dependent on causes and conditions, what arises, is also subject to disappearance. And so the fact that things arise and disappear makes them inherently unsatisfactory or the sort of the basis of suffering. <coughs> so everything, all physical phenomena, mental phenomena, they are conditioned, they are sankharas with one exception. Nibbana, or the highest goal of the Buddha's teaching, Nibbana is not dependent on causes and conditions, so it's unconditioned. And therefore, only Nibbana can be the basis or the source of true and lasting happiness. In Burma, the word dukkha is part of the Burmese language and it's used quite often in the daily language. So, if you do not want to cause an inconvenience to somebody, then you would say, dukkha mapechin babu, I don't want to give you dukkha. Or if something happens to a person, a car accident or breaking a leg, then one would say, oh, dukkha yaute, like dukkha has arrived. <clears throat> I think I have to shorten the last bit. I don't want to give you more suffering in sitting here for a long time. Um, in the Buddhist philosophy, there are different realms 
into which beings can be reborn. There are the so-called lower realms. This consists of the animals, the hungry ghosts, the demons or titans, and the hell beings. And in these four lower realms, suffering pervades. Animals, hungry ghosts, titans, and hell beings, they undergo all different kinds of suffering. The strongest forms of suffering are experienced in the hell. And also, in the Buddhist scriptures, we have quite extensive and elaborate descriptions of how beings are tortured and how they suffer. Then, another realm is the human realm. This we know from our human existence. And it is said that in the human realm, being experience a mixture of happiness and suffering. And then there are the heaven realms of the devas, and Brahma. And in these realms, beings do not suffer very much. Most of the time, they experience happiness and pleasant conditions. Before death or at the time of death, we do not have the option to choose into which of these realms we want to be reborn, but where we will be reborn depends on our karma. Karma, in the Buddhist sense, are all volitional actions committed by our body, speech, and mind. And these volitional actions, they lead, they give results. They produce effects. And generally, we can say wholesome actions give result to wholesome effects. Unwholesome actions result in unwholesome effects. Or in respect, in regard to the different realms, wholesome actions, they lead to a rebirth in um, so-called good existences, the human existence or the heavenly existence. And unwholesome uh, actions, they lead to a rebirth in the lower realms where suffering is pervading. So, these different realms We only can see and know the human realm and the animal realm. The other realms are invisible for most of us. So if we believe them in them or not, it's up to us. But actually, on a psychological level, we all go through these different realms at different times. 
like when we are angry or when we commit an unwholesome deed like killing or stealing, lying, then uh, on a psychological level we are in the lower realm. If we do wholesome good deeds, then we are in heaven. A little anecdote. A samurai comes into the temple and asks the Zen master, Master, heaven and hell, are they really existing? And the Zen master says, Don't bother me with such questions. But the samurai again repeats the question, and again the Zen master says, Don't bother me. So the samurai gets a bit angry, he lifts up his sword and asks for the third time. And then the Zen master says, Now you are in front of hell. The samurai is surprised and shocked, and he throws away his sword and kneels down on his knees, bowing down. And then the Zen master said, And now we are standing in front of heaven. If we want to become enlightened, we have to fully understand the truth of unsatisfactoriness and suffering. To do so, we have to accept this truth and try to fully penetrate it, to fully realize it. So we should open up our heart to ever deeper levels of suffering and pain to come to a true, personal and direct understanding. As we know, this is not an easy task. It's not an easy undertaking. It needs a lot of perseverance, a lot of diligence, and even a greater portion of courage to open up to what seems to be so threatening, so painful, so unpleasant. And we have to come to understand this third level of suffering, the Sankara Dukkata, the inherent suffering of conditioned phenomena. Because only when we understand suffering on that level do we want to become free from it. Only then do we have the desire to finally put an end to it. Only then do we really put it into practice and strive to attain it. And so then, with diligence and perseverance, we put the Buddha's teaching into practice. And so, by actually practicing it, before long we will be able to taste the liberating fruit of this practice. So, may all of you be able to fully understand Sankara Dukkata and become fully free from it.
become fully enlightened. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.